Okay, I think we should start. Um, welcome everyone to Kurdish Studies Series event um, organized by LSE Middle East Center um, and um, Kurdish Studies in University of Florida. Um, I'm delighted to welcome uh, four speakers. Uh, Majid was here just two minutes ago. I think he got disconnected. He's connecting to us from Georgia and his connection wasn't uh, was a bit wobbly. So I'm sure he will rejoin us in a second. But for now, we have uh, three of our speakers. Um, and uh, I will be chairing the panel. Um, and uh, today's event is basically launching uh, the book, the edited book, uh, Kurds and Yazidis in the Middle East, uh, as you can see here, uh, edited by uh, Ganesh Murat Tezjur, who is also with us. I also have a chapter, two chapters, uh, co-written with Ganesh and this uh, single chapter on the book. But um, it said uh, there are lots of speak with, uh, chapters in the book, so we won't, we would, we weren't able to give everyone a space. Therefore, I abstain from speaking uh, and to chair the event. Uh, and I'm delighted to welcome uh, my great colleagues, um, Gunesh, Ohanes, Arzu, and, and Majid. Uh, I'll briefly uh, talk, some, talk about some housekeeping rules and introduce the speakers, and then we will move on to uh, the uh, speakers' uh, presentations right away, then we will have a Q&A session after that. My name is Zeynep Kaya. I am a, a lecturer at the University of Bath. Um, I've been involved with the, with the Middle East Center for about uh, 10 years now, and I've been working on the Kurdish politics and, and Kurdish issue in the Middle East. Um, and the speakers will talk for seven minutes. Uh, if you would like to ask a question, uh, please write it to the Q&A uh, box you will see at the bottom. Please don't write your questions into the chat box. Um, the event will be recorded um, and it will also be live streamed on Facebook. If you would like to tweet about the event, you can use the hashtag LSE Middle East or hashtag LSE Kurdish Studies. Um, uh, there is also a book voucher courtesy of Bloomsbury, the publisher, and this is on the web page uh, for the event. You will see it there or um, Nadine and my colleague will also post a link in the chat box. Uh, to you know, and you can access the link that way as well. And now, hi, Majid, welcome back. Uh, now, I was just introducing the panel, and I was just about to introduce our speakers, so you're back right in time. Uh, thank you very much. Just cut by mistake. I could not. That's fine. Glad you're back now. Um, so our speakers, Gunesh uh, Murat Muratejur is Jalal Talabani Chair and Professor at the School of Politics, Security, and International Affairs at the University of Central Florida. He also directs UCF's Kurdish Political Studies program. And most recently, he has edited um, this book, as I just showed, um, shift, uh, Kurds and Yazidis in the Middle East, Shifting Identities, Borders, and the Experience of Minority Communities, and the Oxford Handbook of Turkish Politics as well. And he's currently writing a book on liminal minorities in the Middle East. And what I just said doesn't even cover what he does. He's a very busy man. He is doing lots of interesting research and publishing lots of stuff. Um, so, but I'll just move on to the next, next speaker. Unfortunately, we have very limited time to cover uh, everyone's background in detail. Majid Hassan Ali, who just joined us again, uh, completed his doctoral research with a focus on religious minorities in Iraq at the Institute of Oriental Studies, University of Bamberg, Germany. Uh, he's an associate member of the Department of Yezidi Studies uh, at the Georgi Sveteli Institute, am I pronouncing it correctly, yeah. of Oriental Studies, Ela State University in Tbilisi. Um, his research interest includes the difficulties and challenges the ethnic and religious minorities are facing in Muslim-majority countries in the Middle East. Arzu Yilmaz uh, is a visiting scholar at the University of Hamburg. Uh, she moved to Berlin in 2018 as Istanbul Policy Center Marketer Fellow at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs. She spent seven years in the Kurdistan region of Iraq as a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at the University of the Hook and as the chair of the Department of International Relations at the American University of Kurdistan. Arzu obtained her PhD in international relations from Ankara University in Turkey. Yay, me too. Not PhD, but I have BA and MA. Yeah, uh, yes, and, that's great. Uh, and um, 
So you're from Mülkiye. You had the Mülkiye stamp. Mülkiye <laughs> <laughs> um, And she wrote her dissertation, PhD dissertation on Kurdish refugees in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. Finally, uh, Ohanes Kılıçta uh, researches the history of non-Muslims in the Ottoman Empire and Turkey, intercommunal relations in multi-ethno religious societies, citizenship and minorities, the history of citizenship and military service, and historical sociology and the philosophy of history. He was Kazan visiting professor in Armenian studies at California State University in autumn 2020. In spring, he was appointed as Nikita and Eleonora Ordianian visiting professor in the Department of Middle East and South Asian and African studies at Columbia University. Congratulations on that, it's been recently. And, and thank you everyone for joining us today. Uh, and um, I'm looking forward to hearing your, um, your thoughts uh, and your presentations. Uh, as we said, uh, our organizer Nadine is very strict, so we are going to keep the presentations to seven minutes so that we have enough time for Q&A afterwards. Uh, we will start with Ganesh uh, and then we'll move on to Majid, then Arzu, and then we'll complete uh, the presentations with Johannes' uh, talk. And I will go on mute now. Please, everyone also mute yourselves if you're not speaking. And Ganesh, it's over to you. Thank you. Uh, thanks much, Zeynep. And maybe just to give very brief background information about this project. Uh, I mean, Zeynep Ayan were in Iraqi Kurdistan. It has been three years, back in 2018. We were doing some field work uh, in the camps, mostly populated by the Yazidis. And then all this idea actually came from this field work in that uh, part of the world three years ago. And then Zeynep has been really a core member of this project from the beginning. In 2019, uh, almost like two years ago in March 2019, there was a conference at the University of Central Florida. Many of the contributors to this book attended. And then the book actually came out of that conference. And then uh, after two years, we are very glad to see it's actually printed. Again, I would like to thank Zeynep and all the colleagues uh, at LSE's Middle Center for hosting this uh, book launch. And I also want to extend my thanks to Sophia Rutland at IB Taurus for supporting this uh, book from, from the very beginning. And hopefully, our readers will also uh, appreciate it. So, I, I mean, I just want to maybe give you a very brief uh, overview of the, what the book does, because obviously it's an edited book. So there are 10 different chapters by, um, by many different scholars with different characteristics and different skills. So, I mean, it is always a challenge, obviously, when you're editing a book, uh, because the challenge is basically how to make it more coherent. So I think, and this is obviously my responsibility as an editor, try to make the book coherent and making having a more lasting contribution. Uh, so let me just also then say just something very brief about my approach. So, I mean, when you look at the Kurdish and Yazid studies, there has been a more like a renaissance, especially in the Kurdish studies, uh, especially maybe in the last 15 years, since 2015, I was doing some uh, basic research, trying to see the increase in the publications, dissertations, books, articles in Kurdish studies. And, there's a, almost like an explosion of number of high quality contribution in Kurdish studies. When it comes to Yazid studies, it is a little bit like maybe different and maybe the change only happened after the very tragic events of 2014. Uh, Yazidis, there was a, I think very highly qualified scholars studying the Yazidis for a long time, but only after maybe in the last seven years because of what the IS did to the Yazidis, there has been a huge increase in, in the interest among the scholars and not to mention about the public about the, the fate of the Yazidis. So, so in this sense, like what I try to do in this book is as an editor is that try to put the Kurdish and Yazidis in a, studies in a greater communication. Because again, there has been lots of discussions about the identity of the Kurds, identity of the Yazidis. And when it comes to the Yazidis, there's always this question of whether they are Kurds or not. And I have to say that it's a highly complicated question depending on what Yazidis you are talking to. And that is, I think, very clear in the pages of this book. And the way in which I kind of frame it is that it promises to provide a systematic understanding of how the Kurds and Yazidis interact with each other, the formation of both the Kurdish and Yazid identities, and maybe more than that, also how the Kurds and Yazidis interact with the other people in the region. Because most of the Kurdish studies so far, obviously, I think for the right reasons, focus on their interaction with the states, the dominating hegemonic repressive states. This has been maybe one of the core uh, like the direction of the literature in Kurdish studies. But then when it comes to how the Kurds interact with the 
other minorities, that, that there has been more kind of a gap in the scholarship. Uh, and I mean, at least some of the contribu contributions to this book try to kind of address this interaction. I mean, in the sense that how the, for example, Kurds interacted with Armenians. Uh, this is basically the study of the Ohanes in his chapter. Or obviously how the Yazidis interact with the Kurds. This has been the topic of a couple of chapters uh, in this book. So this is basically how I think about the, maybe one of the main contributions of this book. The other thing I should emphasize that uh, the book, I think, relies on five or six different languages in terms of original data collection. I mean, obviously, we have people who are speaking Arabic, uh, like Majid, for example. We have scholars who speak Ohanes. We have a couple of speakers who basically use Kurdish and Turkish sources, and obviously some of the Western languages. So like the chapters really kind of try to um, capitalize on different kind of original sources to basically promote like different original understanding of these interactions. Um, the other thing is that the book, I mean, I'm a political scientist, but many of the people in this uh, book who contribute to it are not political scientists. So we try to have a more interdisciplinary approach, uh, which basically utilize insights from sociology, from history, from cultural studies, and from uh, anthropology. So I think that is basically one of the other important um, uh, goals of the book. Um, so since I have limited time, I just want to maybe going over some of the issues superficially, but I also want to be respectful of the other uh, the speaker's time. So one thing I should say that there's a tendency uh, in, especially in both Kurdish and Yazidi studies, in the sense that, and if I can paraphrase Milan Kundere, uh, who is obviously a very important French and Czech uh, uh, novelist, I mean, in a sense, in both cases, there's this kind of a struggle of memory against forgetting in both Kurdish and Yazid studies. And maybe in Kurdish studies, this has been overcome because I think there's a kind of a clear understanding of from the vantage point of the Kurds, how the history is now basically perceived, maybe unlike 20, 30 years ago. And when it comes to Yazidi studies, we are only seeing the beginning of that kind of vantage point in the sense that there's only a new focus on how the Yazidis make sense of their history and how they basically perceive what happened to them in the early modern and modern ages and also in the contemporary ages. So I think that is just very important, but at the same time, in a sense, it may take us to this realm of uh, the notion of victimhood in the sense that I mean, it's just obviously true that both Kurdish and Yazidi people are subject to levels of repression, levels of uh, violence, and then it obviously kind of fosters this image of like the victims. I mean, we kind of acknowledge that in this book, but at the same time, as scholars, it's also our responsibility to kind of really try to recognize the agency of both the Kurds and the Yazidis. And I just want to emphasize that because especially when it comes to uh, intercommunal relations, how the Yazidis interact with the Kurds, or how the Kurds interact with the, uh, the Armenians, or how the maybe the, 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 the Kurds interact with the hegemonic Turkish ethnicity in Turkey, all this notion of the agency becomes very important. And I think one of the contributions of this book in the sense that we really kind of try to like, develop this perspective through which the agency of the ethnic groups and their leaders became much more clear. Uh, and this basically, I think, helps us to come maybe go beyond this notion of victimhood which typically assigns a kind of a passive, uh, like a perspective to the uh, like the dominated ethnic groups. And maybe since I'm running out of time, maybe I can say something about the Yazidis because this is my also contribution to this uh, uh, this book. I mean, obviously, when you think about what happened in 2014, the genocidal attacks by the IS. I mean, this is basically kind of really the event which defines the Yazidi victimhood. But at the same time, what we try to do is that we try to kind of talk to the, we try to talk to victims, we try to basically make sense of their perspectives, and we try to basically see how the identities, even after that genocidal attacks, can be highly complicated, highly fragmented, and then maybe under what conditions we can talk about the rise of more empowerment and a sense of political agency. And maybe just to kind of conclude, is that at least for me, one of the most paradoxical consequences of the genocidal attacks of 2014 is that maybe for the first time in history, we can talk about Yazidi politics of recognition, because this was the first time when the Yazidis really became more like actors in a global stage where they basically received recognition. And I mean, obviously, you don't want to have a genocide to be able to reach that stage. But maybe if I want to say something more optimistic from this perspective, this is basically kind of like the time when people really try to make sense of the Yazidis and also accept them as they are. And maybe in this sense, 
I, I can basically finish there with a more optimistic uh, tone and let Majid maybe uh, give a more in-depth understanding of the Yazidi experience. Thank you. Thank you, Ganesh. That was great. And thanks for keeping to time. Uh, Majid, over to you. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. First of all, I would like to thank uh, uh, the editor of this project, Dr. Gunesh Marat Tazjur. And also, I'd like to thank the organizer of this event, Dr. Zainab Kaya. So I think this is a two or three time we meet before also by Skype. And uh, it's a, a honor for me to, to be asked to collaborate uh, on this important book. And it is uh, my pleasure to participate in this event. Uh, perhaps uh, some of you already know how, uh, uh, how New Yazidi uh, research is, but maybe not. When I, when I started my PhD almost uh, 10 years ago, I went into the university library and looked up the, the term Yazidi uh, just to see how it defends us. I saw a huge, uh, brand new, beautiful uh, uh, 20 volume of Encyclopedia of Religion. I went to the end of the line of the book and uh, took out the last volume. Uh, I opened it uh, at the letter Y and uh, I searched for the word Yazidi. What was uh, written there? Nothing. I thought, uh, how can this be? It was actually a strange feeling to know that we, uh, in the eyes of uh, the Encyclopedia of Religion, we I, uh, simply did not exist. Um, Western and uh, even Iraqi newspaper have uh, really only begun to report uh, on the Yazidi since 2014. Uh, in a sense, uh, nationally and internationally, the Yazidi have uh, remained invisible all this time. At the moment, Yazidi identity is shifting. Uh, today, I hope to give you a little insight uh, into the historical and political dimension of this. Uh, my chapter examined the historical and uh, uh, political dimension of Yazidi identity before and after the Ferman or genocide of 3 uh, August 2014. It includes the following uh, introduction, uh, the Yazidi as an, uh, as an uh, ethno-religious uh, group. Uh, how can I go to the second page? Um, uh, the state of Iraq and uh, the Yazidis, uh, political dimension of Yazidi identity in Iraq, the Iraqi Arab nationalist and uh, political parties, the Kurdish nationalist and political parties, the Yazidi political movements in Iraq, the transmission of Yazidi identity in the uh, Caucasia, uh, manifestation of the transmission of Yazidi identity after 2014 and conclusion. What is the study about? Uh, my chapter examined the Yazidi identity before and after the ISIS attack on Yazidi, which took place on the 3rd of August, 2014. Uh, it pays special attention to the historical and political evolution of Yazidi identity. Uh, but first, uh, let me give you some uh, background on the Yazidi. Iraq uh, is the country of origin of uh, the Yazidi, the Temple of Lalish, uh, the most sacred place uh, of the Yazidi faith is located in Iraq. It is important to the Yazidi people is similar to the two of the Vatican for Catholics. Yazidi identity has been in uh, flux for some time. Uh, political development in Iraq since, uh, since the 1960s uh, have resulted in major transmissions to Yazidi identity. The early Second Republican era uh, in 1963 the U.S. invasion of Iraq 2003 and the ISIS attack on the Yazidi in 2014 are significant here. In the recent past, Yazidi's identity become an issue in very different contexts. For example, the transnational nature of the Yazidi become an identity issue 
in the former Soviet Union during the 1920s. But in Iraq, in the 1960s, both Kurdish and Arab nationalists tried to co-opt Yazidi into their agendas by, uh, by claiming uh, that their ethnicity was Kurdish or Arab. Nevertheless, no independent Yazidi is no nationalist position on the matter of Yazidi identity exists uh, period 2003. So after the US invasion or in Iraq in 2003, new Yazidi political movement uh, formed political relation with the non-Yazidi parties. However, this did not uh, help the re uh, to resolve the ident identity question. Kurdish activists and member of the Kurdish political party, especially the Kurdistan Democratic Party in the, and uh, the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan PUK believe that the Yazidi are Kurdish and still do so. But in August 2014, ISIS invited Sinjar and uh, Nineveh plane the Iraqi army and the Peshmerga forces failed to protect them from ISIS. So the Yazidi lost faith uh, in politics and in the military. This has uh, had a huge impact on the Yazidi public opinion. As this example show, Yazidi identity is uh, fragile in, and in fact, it was uh, almost destroyed. Now it is uh, being uh, rebuilt more or less from the ground up. Uh, uh, perhaps uh, for the first time in history, the Yazidi identity is becoming uh, recognized as uh, an ethno-religious identity of its own, at least in academic circles, which I dealt with this, uh, uh, with this case in different research uh, in past. Let us now look at the uh, research questions. Uh, first question, why did, if, why, why, why did the attitude of the Yazidi minority change in 1960s, particularly their attitude toward Arabs and Kurdish? So in the, there's some details in my paper, uh, how the Yazidi attitude towards nationalist parties in monarchical period and uh, in, in the Republican period. The second question is, how, how has Yazidi identity in Iraq, Syria, and Soviet Union been affected by political uh, developments in these countries? The other question is, how, how have political and uh, policy changes before and after 2014 affected to the, uh, the Yazidi as a religious minorities? The last question is, how have the Yazidi uh, participate in political life to date? So I follow the methodology of this uh, uh, study. I use this official document, historical sources, and uh, personal interviews with the public uh, representative, along with uh, internet uh, survey in English, Russian, and Arabic. So uh, the result of uh, the study, I, I bring uh, some point here. One of it, after 2014 attack, Yazidi called uh, uh, for the ISIS attack on them to be recognized as a genocide based on religion. The ISIS attacked uh, and uh, the withdrawal of Kurdish army forces from the Sinjar region, which left the Yazidi in the hand of ISIS, caused uh, a significant change in the uh, political identity of the Yazidi in Iraq and abroad. The other point, the attack and uh, it is uh, aftermath have uh, redefined Yazidi relation with their uh, Muslim neighbors. The relation between uh, the Yazidi and the Sunni Arabs and uh, Sunni Kurdish has broken down. <clears throat> These events and uh, development have a significant impact on the entire Yazidi community worldwide. They are now uh, rethinking uh, the religion, ethnic, and uh, national aspect of their identity. So the last point here, the Yazidi differ from uh, region to region and from country to country, from Rojava in Syria to Bashiqa and Bazana in the disputed uh, areas in Iraq, 
where Arabs they are where Arabs speak uh, speaking Yazidi life to Sinjar and uh, Sheikhan in uh, uh, which is belong to Kurdish region. There are also diaspora in Russia, Armenia, and Georgia. Given this diversity, the, there has uh, never been political unity among the Yazidis. At the same time, uh, the absence of the Yazidi in uh, international media coverage and in uh, political and academic uh, debate focusing on region and the event in uh, which they live is uh, surprising. The discrimination and suffering endured by other minorities in Iraq has been uh, researched and uh, reported to some uh, extent. For example, but not uh, on the Yazidi, this is uh, slowly beginning to change. Because of their religion, Yazidi spent their, their lives uh, con confronted by challenges which is uh, turned affected on their identity, uh, inclusion and uh, exclusion, discrimination and marginalization, all uh, uh, heighten the Yazidis need for uh, a separate identity. On the other hand, victims of discrimination can easily become uh, discriminatory themselves and uh, reproduce the discourse of religion uh, hate, hatred. To date, uh, none of uh, political parties in Iraq have been able to unite the Yazidi under one political banner. So I, I can go to the end. Uh, the outcome of this uh, chapter shows that uh, the nationalist and political parties in Iraq uh, must accept the Yazidi uh, the way they are attempts to change them and uh, to impose unfamiliar ideologies on the Yazidi most uh, family uh, remain, I think, of the past. Yazidis, on the other hand, must understand that uh, confrontation with the other ethno-national or political groups will not lead to peace. Thank you uh, for your attention. Thank you very much, Majid. That was that Did was. I finished in the time. <laughs> sort of, but uh, Arza said he, her talk is going to be five minutes, so I gave her two, three minutes to you. So okay. <laughs> over to you, Arza. I hope I can keep my promise. Well, you promised. I don't know. <laughs> see. Thank you. So shall I start? Yes. Um, my paper focuses on the. Um, political identity of the Kurdish refugees who fled to Iraqi Kurdistan in 1994 during the civil war in Turkey and who have been settled in uh, Mahmur camp and five other settlements around the cities Erbil and Duhok. Uh, to start with, I would like to underline, under, underline that uh, the Kurdish refugees settled in those locations are known and locally called uh, PKK people because of their affiliation with the PKK since the early days of their refuge to Iraqi Kurdistan. Generally speaking, it is true that the vast majority of those uh, Kurdish refugees are PKK sympathizers, and even many of them are the families of the fighters in the PKK. However, given the root causes of their migration, and their actual and legal status in Iraqi Kurdistan. It is also true that they are refugees who faced with persecution, oppression, and forced to migrate to another country. So in this regard, um, uh, the Kurdish refugees I focused on represents a sample of refugee warriors community, which is conventionally uh, defined not merely uh, as a passive group of dependent refugees, but representing highly conscious refugee community with a political leadership structure uh, and armed section engaged in warfare uh, with a political objective. Given this backdrop, there have been two narratives. On one hand, 
those refugees are simply the victims of Turkey's brutal policies. On the other hand, they were uh, an integral part of the PKK, and given that, they were political agents. Therefore, in my research, I traced the political identity of the Kurdish refugees basically by problematizing victim agent, uh, passive, active, or voiceless vocal classifications uh, often referred in uh, migration studies. And I also problematized the conventional approach to refugee warriors communities whose political identity is often defined in relation with the armed groups they are affiliated with. And given my research findings, first, I argue that the political identity of the Kurdish refugees is not given, but developed and transformed in a way to transcend those classifications. And, And rather than the root causes of the migration, the long lasting refugee experience Uh, is the determinant factor uh, in uh, political identity construction process of the Kurdish refugees. Second, I argue that the Kurdish refugees' self-understanding and their perceptions of Kurdistan transform over time and contexts, which constitute basis for the Kurdish refugees to become the agents of their own political act Whereas such a political uh, agent position puts them at odds with the PKK in certain occasions. So briefly, the summary of my findings are as follows. The transformation of the political identity of the Kurdish refugees indicate that over time and contexts, first, the reference to their party affiliation, PKK, has been replaced with the reference to their ethnic belonging, Kurdishness. Second, the reference to their country of origin, Turkey, has been replaced with reference to homeland, Kurdistan. And third, in terms of political objectives, struggle for achieving political goals in home country, Turkey, has been replaced with the struggle for defense and reconstruction of Kurdistan as a whole. I would also like to note that most of the Kurdish refugees have constantly refused to name themselves as refugees, even though they preserve their legal uh, uh, refugee status. In their point of view, the refugee status is just a symbol of occupation of their hometowns, but not an identification of their actual presence in uh, uh, Iraqi Kurdistan. In this regard, taking refuge in uh, Kurdistan perceived as a practice of re-engagement with ancestral homeland. Simply put, they prefer to uh, um, define themselves as Kurds in Kurdistan. And finally, the repatriation, which is seemingly conditional with the realization of the political objectives of the PKK, doesn't refer to an actual exit from the host country. So uh, actually, I would like to also, um, uh, you know, I have already outlined those changing contexts, which explain such a transformation. But in all cases, it will take more than two minutes. That's why I will stop here and leave the floor to Zeynep. Thank you, Arzu. Brilliant timing and very yes. clear as well. Thank you so much. Okay, so over to our last but not least speaker, Ahones. Um, mm-hmm. I'm gonna mute myself and leave the okay. floor to you. Thank you. Okay, uh, let me start by thanking uh, LSE Middle East Center for, for organizing this event. And of course, my old friend, Gunesh Murat Tezjur, for editing this book and give me the chance to take part in it. It's an honor for me. So uh, the concern of my article in, in the book uh, is to understand the intercommunal relations between Kurds and Armenians just before the Armenian genocide. Uh, more specifically speaking, uh, my context or the context of the article is the second constitutional period of the Ottoman Empire, 
uh, as you know, started in July 1908, uh, when the parliament and constitution were restored after 33 years of despotic regime by Abdulhamid II. Uh, and after the, these 33 years of despotic regime, all peoples of the empire, especially Christians, uh, were hopeful for a more free and democratic uh, country. Uh, and the Hamidian regime had established a heavy censorship on press. Uh, once this censorship lifted after the revolution, uh, the number of newspapers and periodicals in different languages of, of empire skyrocketed. And, and as a matter of fact, my uh, uh, main uh, source of uh, in my article is the Armenian uh, newspapers and periodicals uh, uh, of this time after 1908. Uh, so in this, let's say, optimistic environment, Armenians were also hopeful uh, to solve their problems with Kurds in, in eastern provinces of the empire. I mean, although every single Armenian was not in conflict with every single Kurd, there were, uh, let's say, uh, perennial and, and insistent uh, problems between uh, these two communities, especially in eastern provinces. Here, I will mention only two of them, namely uh, land extortions and security problems. Uh, for the land issues, let's say, maybe the most, it's the most important source of mutual enmity. Uh, namely the lands grabbed from Armenians by various actors, one of which was, was Kurdish ones. Uh, for example, the Armenian Patriarchate of Constantinople published a series of reports between 1910 and, and 12, where they collected the, the cases of land seizures in, in, in different provinces. Uh, and the number of cases mentioned in these reports were 982 and 870 of these 982, which equals almost 90% of cases, were in these six provinces, Eastern provinces, where Armenians and Kurds were living side by side. Uh, some of these disputes, I mean land disputes, had persisted for decades since 1890s or even 1880s. It is unsurprising that this longevity of the disputes contributed to the accumulation of intercommunal tension between Kurds and Armenians as younger generations took over this problem from their fathers, even their grandfathers. As one, might, one may guess, bloodshed was not uncommon uh, 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 because of this conflict. In addition to land seizures, assaults threatening the security of life, movable property, and honor of Armenians were another factor that deteriorated the intercommunal relations between Kurds and Armenians. Kurdish chieftains and groups uh, were not the only ones attacking the Armenians, of course, uh, but these attacks uh, in eastern provinces were a routine part of daily life. The contemporary Armenian press frequently reported such attacks taking place in various locations. In some, these perennial problems of land disputes and public security and absence of rule of law continued to be the biggest impediments for peaceful cohabitation of communities. The promulgation of constitution, let's say, unfortunately, did not solve this kind of problems in the provinces. The longer these problems remained unsolved, the more Armenians lost their trust in the new constitutional regime. So in this environment, one of the frequent questions handled in contemporary Armenian press was, quote unquote, what shall we do with Kurds? In most, the, most of these articles, Armenian authors depicted Kurds, Kurds quote unquote, as semi-savage, barbaric, or at best, uneducated people. According to these commentators, Kurds were still, li still living in a feudal order, which did harm not only themselves, 
but also Armenians. According to this approach or this thinking, as long as Kurds remained in ignorance and feudalism, Armenians would continue to suffer from them. Therefore, Armenian commentators suggested helping Kurds in coming out of quote unquote dark ages. One of them says, for example, quote, give them light, education. Within a decade or two, they as a brisk and strong race will be able to contribute to our fatherland, unquote. According to many commentators, uh, Armenians should have taken the responsibility of quote unquote enlightening Kurds. For example, Armenians could assist them in overcoming illiteracy, which was a major problem among Kurds. Even one of them suggested to prepare primers to teach Kurds reading and writing in Kurdish, but this is interesting in Armenian scripts, even they attempted to, to, to do this. Shortly, one may say that the Armenian provincial intellectuals, especially, ascribed a mission of civilization to themselves vis-a-vis Kurds. I'm sure this reminds many of you the Western approach to peoples in their colonies. Just like Europeans had ascribed a civilizing mission to themselves by the phrase of white man burdens, Armenians did so for them, the same similar thing for themselves, as I say, vis-a-vis Kurd. And just like Europeans had defined native people of the colonies as quote-unquote noble savages, Armenians defined Kurds in a similar way in these sources. However, there were two crucial differences between Armenians and of course, westernizing, uh, Western colonizers. First, Armenians were not aliens or invaders or outsiders in Anatolia. Uh, uh, second, they did not have political and military domination, of course, in Anatolia, like Westerners did in their colonies. So Armenians' civilizing discourse was not an attempt, unlike Westerners, uh, to legitimize their political domination, since they did not have such a domination. Rather, it was an attempt to compromise with the stronger party, that is Kurds, uh, I mean, Turks and Muslims in that sense. So as the politically weaker party, they ascribed moral, moral superiority to themselves to save their honor, okay, under, under this attack. So if you like, they put themselves in white man's shoes, but indeed they were quote unquote, the Indians in the scene, which they would learn soon in, in 1915 and following years. Let me stop here. It was a, a quick <laughs> summary of my article. Uh, for, for details, maybe we can go into the Q&A session. Thank you. Thank you so much, Johannes. Okay, that was, that was great. We covered so much ground actually in such a short time. And I know I've read your chapters, they are much richer and more, there's lots of analysis and insights in them. Just a shame we can't talk about all that. But let's move on to questions. Uh, any questions from the audience um, uh, to the speakers? If not, I have a couple of questions. I'm going to use my privilege as the chair to ask uh, some questions uh, while um, the listeners might be thinking of their own their own questions. So my first question is to um, um, I'll start with Majid. Actually, um, the uh, I'm interested in the the Yazidis in the Soviet Union and today's Russia. Like, when did they go there, and why did they go? Uh, what's their, the number of, you know, what's their size? How many people are we talking about living in Russia uh, that belongs to the Yazidi community? Uh, according to sources, of course, the origin of uh, the origin region for Yazidis, it's, uh, uh, it's so-called Kurdistan or in Turkey and Iraq, Syria, 
some of them was in Iran. Um, in the middle of uh, 19th century, they started after some, uh, when the genocide started uh, against uh, other non-Muslims like Armenian, Assyrian, and Yazid also, they immigrated to Armenia and Georgia, and then to other countries which they belong to uh, Soviet Union. And uh, especially after, if we, of course, my topic was about identity there, uh, a lot of people participate against uh, not just Ottoman, uh, not just uh, Turkish, of course, uh, the follower who like, uh, uh, it's called Al-Hamidiyah, Hamidiyah followers, most of them was Kurdish, they also participate and the genocide and uh, mass killing against Yazidi and other Armenian and others. And they immigrated to other countries and they started their new life there. This was your question, right? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Welcome. Um, so we have a question from Rosie Lavoie. Um, she's thanking for the presentations and a question for Majid again. Based on your research, how do you think growing up with the 2014 genocide has affected the identity and outlook of Yazidi children, both boys and girls? Oh. <clears throat> of course, uh, uh, I think uh, the identity of Yazidi is, uh, is, is, of course, in the process of transmission. And uh, especially after, uh, the, after the genocide of Ferman of 2014, uh, the mentality of people changed. Uh, uh, their identity is going to be, as I use it in my chapter also, we, we call it, uh, they call them that ethno-religious minority group. The impact of uh, children also it has huge impact on the children. Still uh, more than uh, 300,000 and 50,000 still in camps and uh, they cannot be educated well and uh, they are around uh, the big cities which uh, there is some kind of discrimination also they think that they are different from uh, other muslims or kurdish so i believe the this case will continue and it will have it has of course a huge impact on their psychology and how they of course we, can, we cannot talk about future but of course, this kind of uh, identity will, will, will have some kind of uh, transmission and will continue in the future. Thank you, Majid. Um, that was great. Uh, I will move on to a question. Actually, I have a question for Gunesh as well. I'm going to combine it with Bob's question, um, and then I'll then go back to Arzu. There is a question for Arzu there as well. Uh, this is more about the uh, study of the Yazidis um, has been marginalized in Western academia. And uh, Bob wants to know what's the state of uh, research uh, on the Yazidis within the region. Uh, we know, do you have any knowledge of that? And I'm also adding to that question, the interest in the Yazidis, as you said, has increased, uh, especially after, after 2014. Um, and do you think this research is going to continue uh, or now that the, the issue has kind of seems to be dropping from the international agenda, um, will, will, will that interest continue in the research mm -hmm. in the uh, academic field? Uh, that's it, basically. That's the yeah. question. Thank you, uh, Bob and Zene for this question. So I actually look at the number of dissertations written about the Yazidis from 1980 to 2018. Um, I mean, in English sources, so there's obviously some scholars who are using some other Western languages like French or German, but which is interesting because you only have like nine dissertations from 1980 up until 2018 on the Yazidis. And there's not a single dissertation written about the Yazidis from, if I can check this number correctly, from 1996 up until 2016. So for 20 years, from 1996 until 2016, nobody wrote a single doctoral dissertation about Yazidis in English speaking academia. So it's not always changing. I had a student who is Tutku who also made a contribution to this dissertation. She's writing a dissertation about uh, post genocide gender relations among Yazidis. So when it comes to region, it's just more complicated and maybe Majid can also reflect on that because I think we don't really have the infrastructure, the intelligentsia 
in the region who can study the Yazidis in a setting of academic freedom. But then at the same time, I think since there has been an increase in the Yazid diaspora in Germany, but also in North America, in Canada, in the United States, we will definitely see more people, and I think coming from the Yazid community itself, who are going to basically just do some work on the uh, these topics. I mean, I think kind of similar to how it happened with the Kurdish studies, because for a long time, Kurdish studies were dominated by people who are non-Kurds. And I'm not saying in a more critical manner, but just as a kind of a factual observation. But in the maybe last 20 years, or specifically in the last decade, you basically see many young Kurdish scholars who made some very important contributions to Kurdish studies. So in a sense, I think we can see some kind of similar trend within the Yazid studies, but with the caveat that obviously Yazids are a much smaller community. So there will be obviously this kind of asymmetry. Um, and do you want me to say maybe something about the Yazid? Because there's one more question I can say, address the Jim Moyer's question about the impacts of the 2014. Uh, I will come. I will come to that. Actually, I will okay. come back. We will go to Arzu, and then we'll revolve sure, back yeah. to the again. Okay. Thank you, Gunesh. That was great. Uh, Arzu, there is a question for you um, by Clara McLinden. Uh, she's thanking for the interesting discussion, and she's asking a question regarding the shift in perception of self from associating with PKK towards a more ethnic notion of self, Kurdish or Kurdistan. Was there a particular moment when this shift can be attributed to? Um, actually, it's a process. I can't indicate significantly one uh, uh, very special moment, uh, but maybe it is important to underline that those people who uh, at the very early stages of the migration, when they took refuge to uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, they preferred to um, identify themselves as Pekekele, you know, and the process, I mean, in Etrush camp and then afterwards in Mahmur um, um, is, a, is a process of Pekekeleşmek. It's really hard to put it in English, but uh, becoming, uh, you know, PKK uh, or being a PKK, um, PKK means uh, pure Kurdishness, uh, a pure Kurdish, you can become a pure Kurdish if you follow the procedures or ideology of PKK. This is the uh, uh, basic idea which uh, uh, shapes the self-understanding or whatever you say at the very early stages of the migration. However, um, uh, this is why I actually said I have also outlined those uh, changing contexts in order to help people to understand what this transformation is about or what makes this transformation possible. And I, uh, uh, in, in that sense, not one significant moment, but two different levels. The first level is personal level. Uh, for uh, for hundred years, these people, you know, with an absolute uh, control over the borders, these people uh, couldn't have the opportunity to know each other. To uh, and the Kurds in Iraqi Kurdistan, to some extent, has been the other for uh, the Kurds who took refuge to Iraqi Kurdistan. So face to face, first experience, first hand information about the other, uh, I can say is one of the important uh, dimensions which help them to change their attitudes. Because uh, uh, I, I don't want to take uh, more time, but there are lots of interviews I can refer. But in finally, uh, this face-to-face -face, uh, experience, first-hand information about the other, finally, uh, result in uh, a conscience like, uh, for instance, I remember an in, uh, one of the interviewers said, at the end of the day, I realized that, uh, uh, you know, beyond all these uh, part uh, ideological differences, linguistic or cultural geographical differences, we all paid uh, for Kurdistan. So the price paid for Kurdistan um, uh, emerges uh, as a common basis, uh, depending on this face-to-face -face experience. Second is experience with the PKK authority, of course, direct and full uh, uh, authority of the PKK. This also, um, uh, you know, makes those refugees realize new uh, types of uh, oppression mechanisms. And in local level, 
uh, there are uh, three, I think, more or less, I can um, uh, say uh, there are three different, uh, in local level, there are three different uh, processes. One is consensus between the PKK and the KDP, because this paves the way for refugees to give more, more voice to their own um, uh, you know, needs, interests, and so forth. Uh, and I, I have to underline that uh, uh, this consensus actually depends on the agreement brokered between the KDP and the PKK in 2002, but it is basically a power sharing agreement. And uh, uh, given that agreement, uh, those parts uh, com commit uh, those parts commit that they would not interfere in each other's uh, uh, area of control. However, Mahmur, for instance, Camp Mahmur becomes an action exception. In time, it becomes an exception because of the refugees' attitudes, changing attitudes uh, towards the KDP and the PKK. Uh, I will leave it here. And the second is the relative success of the self-governance uh, in uh, Kurdistan region of Iraq vis-a-vis -vis the failure of the um, free uh, independent Kurdistan uh, project of the PKK. And the third is the paradigm, uh, paradigm shift uh, took place in PKK ideology, which raised, uh, you know, which uh, in a way um, uh, highlighted uh, uh, a, mot a motto, a kind of motto, make the change through reform, but not through destruction, because uh, before 2000, destructing all the system and rebuilding and uh, uh, building up a new system was the uh, political um, uh, what goal. So these uh, first in personal level, second in local level, these three uh, um, uh, contexts, uh, different uh, uh, contexts, I think, uh, makes this transport uh, transformation uh, happen. Thank you, Arzu. You did well, despite the sun, you know, glaring. Yes. <laughs> providing that context for, for your analysis. So that was really interesting. Um, okay, so we have two questions about the Yazidis. Three questions, actually. One about the identity shifts transformation in relation to their own transformation, asked by Jim, Jim Muir, and then another one about the differences between the Kurds. And then uh, after Musul, I have a question for Ohanes. So I want to go to Armenia-Kurdish relations, and then we'll come back to Yazidis and finish it there. We have very limited time, five, seven minutes. So I will ask everyone to be very uh, brief in their, uh, their answers, please. So I will ask the two Yazidi questions combined to Yazidi, uh, to, <laughs> to, uh, to both of you guys. Ohanes, the question I wanted to ask is about the, uh, how the Armenians constructed their version of like sort of Orientalism, uh, if that's the right word to use um, in vis-a-vis -vis, vis -vis the Kurds. The, that kind of discourse produced by the Armenian intellectuals you referred to, who are these Armenian intellectuals? Where did they get educated? Where are they from? Like, what, what's their background? And based on what kind of background did they produce these ideas? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, basically, uh, more specifically speaking, the, these authors or commentators uh, writing in provincial periodicals were, let's say, journal editors, of course, teachers, at colleges and students, college students, uh, lawyers, some professionals, uh, law like lawyers. In some cases, even let's say physicians, doctors, etc. Uh, so, uh, of course, as in every other historical studies, they represent a certain class within Armenians, uh, and uh, it's a long story. But to cut it short. Uh, most of them got their education, higher education, uh, in colleges uh, opened by missionaries, uh, especially American missionaries in, in, uh, across Anatolia in different locations, in Harput, uh, Antep, uh, uh, Merzifon, Tarsus, etc. And some of them uh, even got their higher education in, in high-level universities of, of United States like Yale, uh, or, or I don't know, you can count, and or, or in some uh, universities of Europe of the time, in, in Switzerland, in France, etc. Uh, so their background uh, was, was 
in this profile, let's say, more or less uh, speaking. Uh, and of course, as I say, let me finish by repeating that, of course, they represent a certain class. There maybe it's debatable whether their point of view can be extended to other uh, 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 levels or other strata of Armenian community, but this is the situation uh, with these people. Thank you, that's great. Yeah. Johannes. So going back to the Yazidis, um, Jim Moore's question is, did the horrors inflicted by ISIS in and after 2014 cause a change in Yazidis' sense of identity, perhaps a hardening and toughening effect? Or has their identity become primarily a kind of victimhood? Gunesh, you referred to the set a little bit, so you could elaborate on that a little bit more. Um, and how has such a traditional society coped with such challenges as the return of the victims, uh, the uh, women, uh, who were sexually um, attacked uh, by the Yazidis. Uh, they don't like using the word slave Yazidis, so I'm not, I'm not using that uh, word either. Uh, and a question by Gillian there, have they put aside historical differences and do Kurds and Yazidis recognize, recognize each other's legitimacy now? Do they accept coexistence today and try to support each other against the dominant Iraqi Muslim majorities? So I'm asking these questions combined uh, to Gunesh and Majid, who would like to take them first? As I said, please keep your answers brief. Thank you. Uh, may I start a little bit, Gunesh? Okay. Uh, of course, the differences cannot be finished uh, like that, but uh, the 2014 make more, the difference make more, may, more deeply between two kinds of peoples, Kurdish Sunni and uh, Yazidi. And as I said, and in details also of my researches, that uh, the identity of Yazidi is, has become an, one kind of ethno-religious group. Uh, it, it's not like uh, the political parties say, uh, for example, in Saddam time, they say Yazidi are, are Arabs. And after that, some political parties claim that they are uh, Kurds. What the Yazidi think about, of course, uh, the. Uh, as, as it's clear, the Yazidi, all Yazidi are not Kurds ethnically, and there is Arabs, and uh, the Yazidi have a holy text, which is uh, different languages, which mean uh, in the uh, 12th century, which, when the, this uh, religion started to be an ethno-religious, different, uh, different ethnic belong to this, uh, this faith and religion. Uh, uh, I think both Kurds are not state independent state, and Yazidi also are not independent state. To have bad relation or good relation, they sh they are in one country. Of course, uh, there is constitution in country, and they they can be fine. And of course, uh, one question also asking if they back to Mosul or not. Uh, Mosul is become free now, and uh, people can go and back. But still, most of uh, Yazidi are in camps, in camps around Dog. Thank you, Major, and thanks for yeah. uh, referring to Bruce Stanley's question as well. Um, so, Gunesh, over to you, please. Uh, would you sure. like uh, and coming to Jim Moore's question, some of the chapters actually directly address that. Uh, my chapter, Quarter with Zeynep and Bayadowski, and also Tutkayhan's chapter, offers some extended discussions about this post genocidal transformation, but just very briefly. It has been obviously a very complicated and difficult process because it's a very traditional society with lots of patriarchal practices. But I think that is basically being evolving now. Uh, Yazidi leadership actually accepted the women who were assaulted in back in the community. But when it comes to the children who are basically, in a sense, children of rape, if I can use this word, uh, there's always much more complicated. There's much more resistance from the society accepting or not accepting this ch these children. But I should also emphasize that, as mentioned, most of the Yazidis in Iraq still live in camps under less than ideal circumstances. Many of them become refugees in Europe or in other Western countries. So there's this, this kind of fragmentation of the society in a sense that there's a fragmentation of the authority, but also fragmentation from a spatial sense. And I think that is going to have huge influences how the Yazid identity is going to evolve over time. Because yes, it used to be more insulated traditional society, but now you basically see Lots of young activists became much more vocal, becoming much more visible, especially in the Western countries, and they had the skills to kind of really make a case for them. So I think they will also kind of really going to transform how the, the notion of authority 
and the hierarchy is going to be pursued by the Yazidis. So I, I can emphasize that. And maybe regarding about the Musul question, I mean, Musul became like a no-go zone for the Yazidis well before 2014. In 2007, the ISI, the Islamic State of Iraq, actually put an embargo on the Yazid areas. So in a sense, Yazidis were kind of really cut off from Musul for a long time. I basically talked to lots of Yazidis and they basically mentioned how they were subject to lots of attacks well before 2014. So I don't really think that the Mosul is going to be a place where the Yazidis are going to come back. And maybe primarily because other than the destruction is because of the poisoned social relations, because most of the people who attacked the Yazidis were not necessarily foreign fighters, even if they obviously participated in the atrocities, but actually they were local people. I mean, if you think about that, in a sense, bringing these people together in the long run is extremely complicated process and probably not very feasible. Thank you, Ganesh. That was great, uh, short and very uh, informative. So, um, so then we, I will uh, Bruce Stanley's question about Mosul. I think is, I would consider that answered as well about um, their return to the city and uh, like how are they working in relation to rebuilding the city. There is a final question about Russia by uh, Lima Shahadi. What role does Russia play among Yazidi or Kurdish communities today, given the historic connections to the Soviet Union that were mentioned? Uh, Gunesh, do you want to take this question first? If you're I will leave it to Majid because I think Majid is well positioned to answer sure. it. But, but I think they don't have a huge role, in, especially in Iraq. Maybe they have some kind of role in, inside uh, Rojava and Syria. But uh, in Iraq, it's like Soviet Union policy toward Kurds and Yazidis also. Even uh, the Yazidis in, in, in Georgia, in Armenia, in Russia, in Ukraine, they, have, uh, they belong to their countries and they have uh, such, I, I think that constitution uh, deal with different, uh, different people there. So their policy, the, the same policy like Soviet Union uh, with Kurds, with uh, other minorities, with even with Iraqi government. But it's clear in media which kind of policy they have inside Syria and uh, with Kurdish and their relation with Turkey and and with USA. So. Great, thank you. Um, I'm I'm sorry for rushing you guys in the last ten minutes, but um, we are already over time. Ten minutes over time. So thank you, Nadine, for being flexible. Um, so I will. Uh, it's it, it me uh, now that you know this is a good time to finish. Now that there are no questions anymore, um, I just would like to thank you so much, all of you, Ganesh, Arzu, Majid, and Honest, for thank giving you. your time, coming thank here, you. and talking. It's been a really great journey working on this book together. Uh, our conversations in Florida, our conversations in uh, Kurdistan with Ganesh, and the project that we worked on. So I've, it's been a great pleasure and honor to have been part of this. Uh, journey and thank you so much for coming uh, and thank you very much also to all the questions uh, that were asked during the during the talk um, so hope to meet you again and thanks. thank you very much bye 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 thanks much bye bye, bye, -bye. bye, -bye. bye, -bye.